This is a podcast by Lumina, the perfect space to innovate, collaborate and grow in health, science and tech. Dr. Kerry Hall, welcome to Health Tech Talks. Great, thank you. It's great to be here. Kerry, you completed your hospital training as an enrolled nurse some 35 years ago. You're an Aboriginal health practitioner and you've completed a PhD in Indigenous children's health and in doing so became the first Aboriginal enrolled nurse to be awarded a PhD. You now lecture at Griffith Uni on First People's Health and have extensive experience working in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health and education and you're passionate about health equity and access to culturally safe care. It's wonderful to have this opportunity to talk with you, Kerry, and I wanted to start by asking you about you, where you grew up and, and how you got into nursing. So I'm a Cooker Yalanji and Lama Lama woman from far north Queensland. I did my high school in Mariba and I did my nursing training at Mariba District Hospital and I started there in 1987. The reason I got into nursing was um, my mum became very ill with a rare autoimmune disease when I was in grade 11 and the way she was treated at times by the healthcare system sort of changed me. I was always going to be a hairdresser and then I changed from becoming a hairdresser to um, going into nursing. Kerry, that's a great story. Tell us about your training. So we were interviewed by the the nursing tutor and the matron, which was a very scary affair (laughs) back in those days because nursing back then was very strict and we had really strict protocols on how we had to act and where we could live. We all had to live in the nurses' quarters and we were allowed to know visitors and no male visitors unless they were your dad, your brother or your grandfather. So we started with four weeks of lectures and then after that we were straight onto the wards and then we'd have a week of lectures once a month and then we'd go straight back on the wards and then we had to sit two exams so the course was 12 months we had to sit two exams we had to sit the hospital board exam and then about a month later you had to sit the state exam which was from the Queensland Nursing Council and you had to pass both of those to be able to be registered as an enrolled nurse in Queensland back then. And then where did you go to from there with your nursing? So I worked at Mariba Hospital while I had my first two children I had them and went back to work and then when I had my youngest I took a break because three kids under six was a little bit busy. The nursing then changed in that period from Queensland Nursing Council to APRA and then I had to do some retraining but I was luckily able to do that back at Mariba Hospital. Then I worked at a nursing home, a privately run nursing home in the middle of the rainforest which was a pretty spectacular place and in there we had a high Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander population um, residents so that was that was a really cool place to work. We'd sometimes get flooded in for days at a time and you could only walk up the road to the local hotel and that's the only place you could go or if people decided they wanted to wander off it was through cane fields so it was all very exciting and then I went back to Maribor Hospital, I got offered another job there and then some personal issues happened in my life and I went to New Zealand and I worked in New Zealand for two years. Firstly at a nursing home on night shift and we had some exciting stories there as well. And then I went from there to working for Medlab Hawke's Bay, which was back then was a sister company for Sullivan Nicolaitis. They were owned by the same company. So I then did that as the mobile phlebotomist going home visiting. And that was in Hawke's Bay. So my husband, we lived in Napier and we came back to Australia in 2003 and I've been in Brisbane ever since. And from there I've worked at Red Cross Blood Service. I worked there for four years and then sort of in and out of education and then back into Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health. So Kerry, you said there that you became a phlebotomist. Why was that? The nursing home I worked at in the middle of the rainforest, if residents became unwell or sick, we couldn't get just QML or a pathology coming to come out to draw blood. So we used to have to do it. And then our transport driver, our entertainment officer, then would run the bloods to the nearest town where they could be tested. So Kerry, you were then drawn to study and you did Indigenous Children's Health. How did that come about? So I was working 
working in high schools as an Indigenous education officer and an advertisement came across my desk and I thought, oh, no grade 12s have those qualifications, but I do, so I thought I'd apply and I actually got the job as a research assistant at the then QCMRI in Brisbane and my boss said, oh, have you ever thought of doing extra study? I went, no, I'm too old for this. Mm-hmm. And anyway, so she convinced me that I should enrol in a master's um, to see if I would be accepted because I don't have an undergrad and it was just on work experience and they accepted me. So then that started the process. I did a lit review and articulated up to a PhD in 2014. That's amazing. And so your thesis was acute respiratory illness in urban Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children under five years of age. Yes. Why that topic? Um, respiratory illness in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander is one of the reasons that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander still are mainly hospitalised today. We have cases of pneumonia in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander higher than sub-Saharan Africa children. Asthma is still one of the leading contributors to the burden of disease in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children today. And most of the research in this space in Australia has been done in rural or remote communities and the findings then have just been sort of transferred to urban communities. So my study was the first of its kind in Australia and we think in other countries like Alaska and New Zealand where an urban population was followed for a period of time. And we found that many of the things that were impacting rural and remote communities were still impacting urban children at the community setting. A lot of the other studies are done in rural and remote or in the hospital setting. So there's a big difference. If a child ends up in hospital, they're usually pretty ill. But we wanted to look what was happening in the community and what those levels were. What happened from there? You did your PhD and you were the, as we said in the intro, your first Aboriginal enrolled nurse to be awarded a PhD. Where did that take you from there? Um, I, a friend of mine that I'd worked with, she left where we at. QUT where she was working, Amy Griffith, and she sent me a job interview. This seems to be the way things happen. I get something across my desk. And she convinced me that I, sh- I should apply. And I got a job at Griffith as a research fellow on a research project looking at pharmacy in primary care for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And then, yeah, I went from there to the First People's Health Unit. And you're lecturing now? And I'm lecturing now, yes. <laughs> the role that you're doing, what's it enabling you to do for the health of Indigenous people? The role I'm doing now in the, in the First People's Health Unit as a lecturer is the focus on what we're doing is to be change agents for the next generation of health professionals that are graduating from tertiary settings. We're talking about cultural safety first peoples, what that means for first peoples, and we're talking about some of the barriers of why people don't access healthcare due to past government policies and interventions that have happened in in First Peoples in Australia. So just going back to the fact you said you work at the First Peoples Unit at Griffith University, why is the need for a separate unit? So the First Peoples Health Unit, where they're basically to bring the focus to First Peoples Health and the disparities in health for First Peoples. Yeah, the unit's been around since 2015, so this is our eighth year. I've been there since 2019. And at the moment, we are leading across Griffiths Health Group embedding Indigenous content into the health curriculum. So that's our primary role at the moment. So what are the main challenges in First Peoples Healthcare? A lot of it is to do with racism, systemic racism and past policies that have impacted First Peoples, like the stolen generations and all the policies that have come from um, the colonisation of Australia equity, health equity, access, um, especially in rural and remote areas, access to services, transport, the cost of services, where services set up, how they're set up. So they're all they're all barriers. Now there's some really easy practical things that you could share with us that healthcare professionals could do to break down those barriers. 
I think that if you're going to work in a community where you know there's a big um, Indigenous population and there's a local Aboriginal medical service, go and introduce yourself, say who you are and what you're in, in the community for and get to know the people in the Aboriginal medical service because they will have links to community. Become friends with your Aboriginal health practitioners or your Aboriginal health workers because they probably know the community better than anybody else because they're part of the community, they live there and they will become your conduit to getting to know the community. So And always do a bit of investigation on your community before you go. Find out what's happening there, what services are there so that you know, you can go in a bit prepared. And one of the things we spoke about before we started the recording was building trust in the community as well. How can people do that? You have to be genuine. If you go into a community and you'll say you're going to do something, you have to follow through and do that. If you're going into a community to research, even as a, you know, to do research in a community, you need to work with the community from the very beginning of a research project. Just don't come in and get information out of the community and leave and never come back because that will break any trust that you may have. You just have to be your authentic self, I think. And if you make a mistake in a community or you make a mistake in somewhere, just apologise, say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cause any offence or anything like that. Who can I talk to or what can I do better? If you come across as an empathetic genuine person you will build those relationships because in communities it's the relationships about trust and rapport and two-way learning off each other. And is this the sort of thing that you're teaching in your lectures? Yes this is the sort of stuff that we're teaching. I'm about practice and transition to practice because I have practiced a lot and it's about building the trust and how to sense graduates out so that they also don't come up against something that can impact their future role as a health practitioner because if you have a really bad experience you know that can impact you and whether you want to go forward in that in that profession as well. You're listening to Health Tech Talks, a podcast series delivered by Lumina. To find out more about Lumina, visit the website luminagoldcoast.com.au and sign up today to receive your Lumina Opportunities Pack. So given the challenges, what opportunities, Kerry, are available to help improve access to healthcare? I think looking at the NACHO model, so NACHO is the National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation in Australia, so it is the governing body for the Aboriginal Medical Services in Australia. Um, Quake is the body in Queensland, and they have a real holistic model of health. So when you go to an ARCHO or an AMS, you're not just there to see the doctor. You might go and you'll see the health worker, the health practitioner first, you'll see the doctor, and then you might need to see the psychologist. So a lot of people are there in the building under the same roof, and you can sort of tailor the care so that a person needs to come in once, do what they have to do. They don't have to come back day after day for repeated visits. I think the Archer model is about holistic. It's about caring for everybody and the community, for Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander peoples, the community is at the centre of our health. So cultural safety is for people, community and family. So if you have that AMS model, that's how that works. What are the main innovations in First People's Health? Well, one of the innovations I'd like to see would be like a cultural hub where people could come together and just share knowledge, especially like I heard an incident on the weekend, a friend of mine's younger sister's just had a baby. She was discharged four hours after birth. She didn't even know how to bath a baby. So it's like having a place where people can come and just share knowledge, like community members can come and share stories or, you know, midwives can come and sit there. It's like a sort of like a big drop-in centre, but it's a culturally safe space, so people people can feel safe and welcome. You know, there's this whole thing, it takes a village to raise a child. It's like recreating the village. 
Yeah, wouldn't so, that be wonderful? So people could come in and just, you know, not necessarily, there's no, be no charge for any services. It's just a knowledge exchange. It's both ways learning. When we, Aboriginal Torres, we have this circular learning. So stuff goes around in circles, you know, so there's a whole education models around that. So it's that going backwards and forwards and sharing knowledge constantly. Kerry, we're doing the interview today from Lumina mm-hmm. on the Gold Coast. How can Lumina support advances in First Peoples healthcare, do you think? I'd love to have a space <laughs> somewhere. And it's not necessarily about an organisation, it's about community groups and people that are doing sort of stuff in silos coming together in a place. It's a bit idealistic, I suppose, but it's something like that would be, I think, would be wonderful. And just making it, I don't know if you know much about in New Zealand they have Marais like it's meeting houses and, and communities come and do lots of stuff there and it'd be I'd like to see a similar sort of concept here where people can come and just share knowledge yeah it's a really important part of mm. First Nations culture isn't it that sharing and yeah. and talking and yarning yeah yeah is that what helps people feel safe in a space yeah so if you yarn, you yarn it's about a knowledge transfer but everyone is equal in that space there's no hierarchy in that space if I'm having a yarn with a group of people I'm not the person in charge. Everyone has the equal voice in that space. Are there any type of companies that you would like to see co-locate here that would help improve First People's Health? I'd like to see like, you know, like um, one of the medical centres to have a space here, but not necessarily to be a full-time medical clinic, but they could sort of run a drop-in centre. So if people, we could, it could be manned by maybe people from the university could volunteer some time just to come and talk to community stuff like the story about you know the, the new mum who hadn't didn't know how to bath her baby come in and talk to somebody about have a practical demonstration let them unpack any concerns they may have and know that if anything goes wrong you can always come back or be, someone's always available to talk to yeah what's the one key message that you would share with health practitioners in terms of First Nations people's health, what key message would you give to them? I'd say you need to have a a real understanding of Australia's past and our history um, and then realise that cultural safety is important to the people that you work with but it's also important to you as a practitioner because as a practitioner you also need to keep yourself safe so you can practice safely. How can people create that safe space? Well, when, you, when you're meeting with – you need to have a space that's neutral, I guess, would be the best place. Have a neutral space. Like at our Logan campus we have a dedicated yarning circle where people can come and sit it's a quiet space, it's in nature. Um, so it's a, a neutral space where people feel comfortable so there's no sort of images of hierarchy or all that sort of stuff. When I've worked, I've actually sat under lots of trees in car parks and picnic benches talking to community members about health things because they didn't feel safe within the confines of four walls. So we, I'd, I'd take it outside. Can you think of any career highlights from your actual practical nursing? Probably the, the test. The test. If you work with Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander communities, you will be tested. There's this test you have. You don't know you're being tested until you pass the test and then you're accepted. When I was doing my PhD, a community tested, tested me for 18 months, tried to push my buttons, and it was just to see if I was genuinely who I said I was and if I was going to do what I said I was going to do. And after 18 months in, we finally had this bit of um, we come to an impasse and we had a, f- a slight discussion and then she goes, yep, you're all right. 
And then after that, when anything went wrong with her or her family's health, she would come and seek me out. So then I knew I'd sort of pass the test. And just finally, what's next for you? Continue to do what I'm doing because I really, I love what I'm doing at the moment. And just seeing the change that in some people that I'm working with and an understanding of the importance of educating about first people's health and the barriers that exist today from past policies. A lot of people aren't aware of that. So if you don't know, you don't know. If you don't know, you ask. And if you don't know, well, you try and find out. So, yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for talking with us today, Kerry, and all the very best with your important work. Thank you, Rebecca. To learn more about Lumina and how we work with health tech startups, visit luminagoldcoast.com.au. And don't forget to sign up to receive your Lumina Opportunities Pack today.